Money FM 89.3. Best of your money. Market View on Money FM 89.3. Asia-Pacific markets are trading in the green this morning on the back of a solid performance on Wall Street overnight. Tokyo is up 1%. Seoul and Sydney trading higher as well. Investors are closely tracking corporate earnings as well as the latest U.S. inflation numbers, which are due out tonight. Joining me now to discuss all this and more is Kyle Roda. He joins us live from Australia, where he's an analyst with IG. Kyle, good morning. Good morning and thanks for having me. Always great to have you on the show. Now, when we look at markets, I think investors are sorting through four major themes, corporate earnings, inflation, geopolitics, and the pandemic. We're going to take each of these in turn and start with earnings. But before we do that, I thought I'd ask you a couple of personal questions, if that's okay, Kyle. Uh, first up, when's the last time you went to a theme park? Oh, yes, yes. yes. Three or four. I'm not a big theme park person anyway, so um, it's been a little while, even before the pandemic. All right. And second, how many streaming services do you subscribe to? I'd say that I'm pretty bad with that kind of technology, though, so I stick to my Netflix and uh, a couple of local ones down here. So less than a handful. Yes, less than a handful. All right. Thanks for the color, Kyle. The reason I'm asking is that your answers relate to one of the biggest corporate announcements overnight, as well as some post-pandemic trends that are emerging. So the Walt Disney Company earned more than one billion US dollars in the last three months of the year as consumers returned to Disney theme parks, and Disney also added some 12 million new Disney Plus subscribers, blowing up, helping it close the gap with Netflix, which has been reporting slower growth. So we're well into the US. Earnings season now. What is your overall take, Kyle, on the state of U.S. companies? Well, I think we've had objectively a good earnings season, but there's there's two ways to look at it. And the first is that clearly we've had some really solid results on on the surface level from U.S. corporates. So we're looking at earnings growth now at about thirty percent. We've got around seventy six, seventy seven percent of companies um, delivering a positive surprise. Um, and we have overall seen some reasonable guidance being given um, from, from corporates into the next quarter, and we're looking at earnings growth for, for you know, basically the rest of the year, um, over the next three or four quarters. However, and I think this is what the markets are really worrying about at the moment, is that although that earnings growth is at 30%, it is down, and at the, at the lowest it's been for the last three or four quarters. Mm. The positive surprise ratio is uh, as low as it's been for the last year, and we're starting to see some um, downward um, revisions to, to earnings next quarter, and some signs of earnings momentum is slowing. So really, it's been a good earnings season, but we're, we're looking at that slowdown in potentially peak in, in profits. And I think that's what got that, that's what has investors a little bit wary, even if you know these results have been pr- pretty solid on the surface. Got it. So far, about 60% of S&P 500 companies have reported earnings. Nearly two-thirds have delivered earnings and revenue that top Wall Street expectations. Uh, other major companies reporting earnings overnight include cloud software builder Twilio, ride-sharing company Uber, both are reporting stronger than expected earnings. Twilio grossing 10% more than expected and Uber sales jumping an incredible 83%. Twilio shares up more than 18% in after-hours trade, which brings me to my next question, Kyle. It seems that after-hours trade in the US is becoming more volatile. 18% swings, like we're seeing for Twilio, used to be pretty unheard of in the US, but they seem to be more commonplace. Why do you think that is? Um, two things spring to mind for me. One is just that this is the, the um, I suppose, feature of the markets at the moment, which is you know things are, are reasonably volatile and with valuation so high. 
investors are getting very nervous about the outlook, and that's you know, obviously a Fed story, a macro story. Um, I think Facebook's a great example whereby you know we saw a miss, which you know was, was reasonable but not you know enormous, um, resulting in the stock being down 30% from its earnings. And of course, in, in post-market trade, it was down 20% or so. The other thing too, and I think this is something that we've seen, especially um, with with the um, you know world that we're dealing with retail traders, is that. Mm-hmm. For example, we have an after-hours offering that, that runs four or five hours after the cash close, and we are seeing increased involvement from retail traders in um, that, uh, that that those time um, that time period, trying to effectively speculate result on results and you know obviously uh, participating in, in the volatility that can come from earnings. So I think it's one. I don't know if it's a trend necessarily yet that, that mm. could continue, um, but it's certainly a feature of, of a volatile market and a nervous market, and also a market that has greater uh, retail participation and therefore you know a greater scope. For, for choppy price action and volatility after the bell. Interesting. Yeah, we've seen a lot of market volatility of late, although overnight the major U.S. indices all finished higher and perhaps most notably they did not slip into the red at all during the trading session. The Nasdaq finished 2% higher, the S&P 500 rose 1.5% and the Dow closed up a bit shy of 1%. All right, back to our market narrative. The next major factor on our list is inflation. Have you noticed prices significantly uh, rising, Kyle, you live in Australia. Um, in certain certain elements, yeah. So, for example, going going around to restaurants and you know just you know your fast food eateries, you're seeing signs everywhere being popped up that you know um, we have to increase prices by X amount because of you know disruptions to supply chains, higher input costs, higher mm. cost of food, whatever it happens to be. So it's definitely mm. happening here. It's not as extreme mm. in Australia as I think in other parts of the world. Um, you know, our CPI at the moment headline is around three and a half percent. Of course, in the US, it's seven percent. Eurozone, five percent. UK, mm. high, um, you know, around that mark as well. So, mm. we're, but you know, it, although it's not quite as high, we're certainly, I'm certainly seeing signs of it around around the city. Uh, a lot of it, again, seems to be around cafes, food, all that sort of stuff. Is is, is where it seems to be most most um, acutely noticed. So U.S. consumer price figures due out tonight and they are likely to clock in at the highest level in 40 years. Analysts expecting the headline inflation number to come in at about 7.2% for January. How do you expect markets will react to this? Well, I suppose it's it's pretty simple, really. If it's a if it's a hot number, we we see that nervousness about Fed hikes coming back into the conversation. If it comes in a little bit lower, then you know that's really a, a, another impetus for risk assets to recover. I mean, I think at the moment, what's really driving this choppiness and uncertainty in markets is that you know clearly we know that interest rate hikes are coming and that the Fed's going to to um, unwind its balance sheet. But what we don't know is how many hikes. Um, we haven't got great guidance, especially from from Jay Powell yet on on some uh, on anything like that. Um, at the moment, the markets are pricing the five and a, five and a half hikes or thereabouts this year. Um, but, you know, the door is left open for a hike at every meeting, which would be around seven or so. Mm. Um, and we don't know much about the, the Fed's balance sheet um, runoff yet. That's, there's really little other than some, you know, very basic principles that were mm. um, delivered at the last meeting. We weren't really given much clarity there. So, Clearly, if this inflation print comes in hotter than expected, 7.2 is a very high number. It's a very high um, benchmark to meet. Um, that's probably going to renew concerns about a, a Fed that will have to slam the brakes. You know, markets are pricing a 50-50 chance of a March 50-point um, hike now. Um, so that's that's really kind of the simple simple fact of the matter. If it comes in below expectations, then 
Now, clearly, that's going to ease some of the nerves, but you know, we'll only know once the data comes out. Um, it's, it really is quite a, a binary kind of um, situation at the moment. Speaking of nerves, let's turn to geopolitics now. And there are two hot spots to watch. The first has been on everyone's radar for weeks now, and that's along the Russia-Ukraine border. Moscow has amassed more than 100,000 troops there. And Russian President Vladimir Putin has everyone guessing about whether an invasion is imminent. So from the market's perspective, Kyle, how do you factor in the risk of war? Well, I mean, obviously it's a natural gas and oil play, I think, as far as traders go. Um, and I think that's part of the reason why we've seen energy prices move higher in the last few weeks is, is that, you know, risk premium around um, conflict is, is being baked in there. In, in broader markets, though, I don't think um, that we're really seeing, um, you know, the, the, the risk of um, actual conflict uh, or in some kind of incursion from Russia into Ukraine um, as being, you know, really affecting asset prices yet, which, you know, for me... It's it's so difficult to tell because you know clearly I'm you know I'm not a, an analyst when it comes to, to, to international relations, but there there is um, a high degree of uncertainty about what the end game is here um, in terms of what uh, Putin is intending to do uh, strategically. Um, you know some suggesting this is kind of the madman theory of, of um, you know global global politics where he's simply just trying to keep people on, on their toes and 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 keep. Um, you know, I suppose his, his adversaries, you know, um, thinking and wondering what, he, what he's going to do, um, with not necessarily an end game in, in, in um, mind yet. So, at, at right now, I, I think the markets, other than the energy complex, which is probably still not fully discounting the prospect of conflict, um, isn't taking the, the, the risk of, of, of war um, particularly um, highly at this point in time. So, if it does happen to break out, I think it would be a significant volatility event. Um, but again, we're just—I think everyone in the market is just watching and waiting to see what happens. They're not betting that it will occur, but if it does, I think it'll be a pretty considerable event um, for, for volatility. So I want to pick up on the um, issue of oil because the other geopolitical issue to consider is Iran. Tehran and Washington appear to be making progress on their nuclear talks, which are entering the final stretch. So what do you think is the likelihood that a deal is reached? And if one is, what the impact it will have on the price of oil? Presumably an influx of Iranian oil into the market will help stem inflation. Yeah, I think it will. Um, I suppose will it be strong enough to offset some of the other forces that are driving oil prices higher? And I think in the long run, I'm, I'm skeptical, skeptical as to whether just the return of Iranian oil um, in, in terms of the quantities that would hit global markets and, and the way it would increase supply would be necessarily enough um, to stop this run higher in oil prices. But in terms of you know the political situation between the US and Iran at the moment, I think both have a clear desire and need to be able to get a deal done. I think the, the Democrats and the Biden administration really wants to return to sort of the Obama era consensus as it relates to Iran um, and use you know more traditional liberal diplomacy uh, to try and engage with them and, and stop this kind of um, you know nuclearization of Iran that you know picked up pace um, after the, the Trump um, uh, uh, interventions and sanctions on, on the country. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think in time we'll see them return to global oil markets uh, on the basis that a deal will be reached because both sides really need it done, especially around with its economy, the, the, the way that it has struggled through sanctions. Um, I suppose it's a matter of when that happens to occur, and I'm not entirely sure whether this will be the um, uh, time in which a deal is struck. 
but I think it will probably occur. Markets will start to price in the, the increased supply of, of Iranian oil, although I don't think that'll be the biggest driver of oil markets going forward. It'll be enough to change the trend for, for, for crude prices. You're listening to Market View. My guest this morning is Kyle Roda, joining us live from Australia, where he's an analyst with IG. So we continue our market narrative tour, and the last topic I want to tackle with you, Kyle, is the pandemic. So here in Singapore, our Defence Minister, Ng Eng Hen, has come down with COVID-19. However, he has shared that thanks to the vaccine and the booster, he only has a mild case, really, not a life-threatening one. I want to get a sense of COVID in Australia right now. How, how is it? Is it it's sort of a sense of that it's endemic and let's live with it sort of philosophy has that taken hold or are people still wary i think predominantly at least where i live and where i've done my traveling is that most people are willing to live with the virus now and kind of um, see it as something that is endemic and it has to be kind of lived along with um and and made you know sensible accommodations for i think particularly in melbourne i would imagine in sydney too um, again, where I spend most of my time, mm. um, people are very much fed up of lock, fed up with lockdowns, and, and the conversations a lot about the things that are sacrificed to, to obviously get the, um, the pandemic under control in the past, and whether those sacrifices, when it comes to, to lost incomes, lost jobs, businesses, you know, the mental health impacts, the other health impacts that we can't sort of see, um, kids not being able to go to school, all those sorts of things, mm. that you know, locking down any, any further in the future isn't worth it. And I think some people feel that maybe it was an overreaction from the government in a way, at least while there was vaccines available. Um, but I think people now are much more likely to, to feel comfortable living with the virus. Everybody knows someone now that has had the virus. And although it's obviously a very un- unpleasant experience for a few days, mm-hmm. um, you know, it does generally run a mild course. So people are pretty keen to get back to their, their, their old lives. You know, the vaccination uptake for the third dose is starting to pick up too. Mm-hmm. Um, and the economy is starting to benefit from that as well. We're, we're looking at consumer and business sentiment um, um, surveys in the last few days that show that, you know, that the virus isn't the biggest concern of the households now. It's interest rate hikes and inflation. So we're, we're trying to get back to normal. And I think the attitude is, is that we just have to live with the virus um, and take with it the risks that come with it, knowing that, you know, perhaps there are a greater cost trying to, to, you know, um, contain and live, live, in, live in an environment of, of fear and, and, you know, quasi-COVID zero, I suppose you could say. Yeah, really interesting. If we take a step back at how investors are reacting to the Omicron wave, Kyle, is there a clear shift away from stay-at-home stocks or are the waters a little muddy on that front? Yeah, I mean, I think the narrative's basically just burnt up now. And I think you can see that with something like Peloton, which, you know, really should never have been valued at the valuation that it was. You know, maybe it's closer to fair value now. We've got these talks of, say, acquisitions uh, of the company that that have boosted share price. But if you look at that stay-at-home trade, um, that kind of COVID trade, it's disappeared. And I I think that is just a a signal of, of a market that's kind of, you know, lost that, um, again, narrative. And, and it was always a narrative. It was never based on anything fundamental. It was, it was sentiment and a bit of, you know, euphoria in the market that pushed these stocks higher. Um, I think now we are certainly seeing a market environment that one is a little bit more confident in the future that, you know, perhaps Omicron and its future variants um, are a little bit of a ticket out of, of the pandemic because, like you said before, it's become something that's more endemic that has its own risks but won't see the same level of disruptions that we saw in the last couple of years and that economies can remain open. I know in Australia, for example, we've reopened um, international borders to, to um, uh, vaccinated visa holders. Uh, that will begin at the end of the month. Um, so I think, you know, we're, we're sort of moving past the, the acute phase of the pandemic and people are, you know, fairly confident that, you know, we can live with it now and, and move forward. Um, in saying that too, like I said before, some of those stay-at-home trades, that, that kind of reopening 
um, have killed that narrative when it comes to your Pelotons or your Zooms or whatever else happens to be. And those stocks are probably less attractive. And we'll be trading now more on fundamentals and, and from more sober, sober assessments from more sensible investors. So um, I think that's where we sit right now. But overall, there's a positive development um, and we'll continue to see markets, you know, putting, putting, I think, the virus behind it, notwithstanding any future variants. All right, Carl, we're going to turn to Singapore stocks now. The Straits Times Index booked a third straight day of gains yesterday, rising half a percent to 34.20. It is now up 9.5% since the beginning of the year. Singapore is outperforming Hong Kong, which is up 6%, and outperforming Tokyo, Sydney and Seoul, all of which are in the red. Why do you think that is? I think it's a combination of reopening trade and the reflation trade, which are obviously reasonably correlated or, or similar in a sense. But, you know, if you look at the strength that has come through in terms of, you know, Singapore equities, it's you know been boosted by obviously financials quite significantly, which speaks of a higher rate environment globally. Um, and also um, some of the support that I think has been thrown behind the Chinese economy, which investors are still, think, I still think investors overall are positioning for, um, you know, a, a strong rebound in China's economy eventually this year. Mm. Um, and I think you can see that, say, in the SX 200 too, with what's happening with our mining stocks. So I think it's an overlap of the fact that the, the bank's performing well, the financial sector's performing well, and there's a bit more confidence about, um, you know, the, the Chinese growth story that, you know, investors who want exposure to Asia and want blue chip exposure, so a little bit more safety, are moving into, into Singapore. Um, so that's, that's sort of my assessment on things, and it, and it looks reasonably positive for the time being, you know, again, depending on how we go with the global rates environment and, and um, the Chinese growth narrative. Yeah, I want to pick up on that point of, you know, for the time being, because the Singapore market has a history of outperforming at the beginning of the year and then subsequently falling into range-based trading. So how strong of a risk do you think there is of that happening again this year? Well, I mean, there's always a risk, and I guess it depends on, you know, from, from those macro factors, the um, you know, likelihood of a, of a slowdown in, in U.S. growth and then 